brothers and sisters, would you grab your Bibles? We're going to go back to 1st and 2nd Samuel, and our sermon text for this morning is 2nd Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 27. So if you're visiting with us, we started this book, First and Second Samuel, back in January, and we have been working through it, and we've taken off about seven weeks to do a few different sermons over the summer, and now we're going to enter back into this great story, chronicling the coming of God's kingdom in Israel. Now, if you're visiting... And you're going to stick around for a while. I would encourage you to pick up your Bible throughout the week and just read through the book of 1 Samuel. Even more, you can go on our YouTube page and find all of the sermons. I think there's about 20 of them to to catch up where we're at because we're going to be in the book of 2 Samuel till about two weeks before Christmas. So we're going to be here for a while and it'd be worthwhile to know the story and to know it well. So... Let's give our attention to God's good word. 2 Samuel chapter 1, starting in verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. And David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, well, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. He said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. And then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. And David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of the upright. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. 
You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan, for very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perish. Father, we ask now that you would bless this reading of Scripture and its preaching to our souls. Amen. A jaundiced eye. It's a phrase we don't use, but it's a phrase that the old writers like to use. A jaundiced eye. And they used it to describe an envious or prejudiced or cynical attitude that had become entrenched in the heart of a man or woman. And the, the writers use this phrase for good reasons. It's a colorful phrase. Jaundice is a, a condition that takes place in your eyes and in your skin, and your eyes and your skin turn yellow. And so as we have studied in the book of 1 Samuel, we have certainly noticed a few characters in the book of 1 Samuel that have some yellow, sickly-looking eyes. There was to begin with, in the opening chapters of 1 Samuel, that woman Peninnah, the rival wife of Hannah. And can you remember just how much Peninnah hated Hannah? Every chance Peninnah had, she would rub in Hannah's face a fresh, coarse insult, making Hannah weep. Sometimes she wouldn't even eat. And certainly more than anyone else in the book of 1 Samuel, this jaundiced eye is to be found in who? And Saul, the first king of Israel, Saul was a man who was controlled by envy. He wore glasses with the lenses of envy. Every event, so whether it was victory and battle, whether it was an absence from a dinner table, whether it was the matter of mere friendship or the tasting of honey, was a matter of envy. And because of that, everything was construed as a threat. Saul was convinced that everyone, absolutely everyone, was out to get him, to dethrone him, to hurt his cause. And the result of this is that no one was safe in Saul's presence, not his most trusted, the best warrior in all of Israel, David, not even his own son, Jonathan. But sadly, these yellow, sickly-looking eyes are not constricted to just a few isolated individuals, just a Peninnah or, or Saul. Rather, as we've been studying throughout the book of 1 Samuel, we, we see that the whole nation of Israel is jaundiced. Residing deep within the hearts of these people was a prejudice, and we have to say it was the worst prejudice of all. These people were prejudiced against the Lord their God. Do you remember the scene from 1 Samuel chapter 8? The people of God are gathered together in the presence of Samuel, and they cry out to Samuel and to the Lord, and their words strike the Lord with insult. They cry out, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like the nations. And so as we think about this picture of humanity, and that's what 1 Samuel is giving us, a picture of humanity, we have to say it's a depressing picture. 
As we study Peninnah, as we study Saul, as we study the people of Israel, these pictures don't cheer up our souls. They don't give us joy. We look into the book, we read the book, and we find men and women controlled by envy and hate and suspicion and ill will. But what makes this picture even more depressing is this fact that this picture drawn for us in the book of 1 Samuel is not relegated to the historical past. It's not a a book about the past. It's also a book about the present. Because the picture that 1 Samuel draws is a picture that we find absolutely everywhere. Perhaps even this morning you can think of a few penanas in your own life. Every chance they get, they, they rub in your fra- face a, a fresh, coarse insult. Or God help us, you have a Saul in your life who misinterprets because of suspicion everything you do. But I don't really want to stay at that level this morning. I want to go deeper with you. I don't want to point the finger at Peninnah or at Saul's or at Peninnah's or Saul's in our lives. We've already worked through those texts, those stories. We've already pointed the finger at them. I want to turn the finger around and, and point it at ourselves. And here's the depressing truth. We all have a jaundiced eye. We all have a jaundiced eye. If you take the time and look at yourself in the mirror and, and study your eyes very carefully, you will find a yellow tint in your eyes, meaning this. In each one of us, there is envy and ill will and prejudice and cynicism and hatred. And so before we launch into our text this morning, working through this story in 2 Samuel chapter 1, I want to take some time and just lift up the mirror so that we would see the yellow in our eyes. And we need this mirror. We need to see the yellow in our eyes. We need to be confronted with our our own heart because if we don't do this, we won't be able to see, we won't be able to treasure the goodness and the beauty revealed in 2 Samuel chapter 1 because this is a glorious chapter for sinners. So here's the mirror. I'm taking it out of C.S. Lewis's classic book, Mere Christianity, and he, he gives this test. It's a good one. He writes this. Suppose one reads a story of filthy atrocities in the paper. Then suppose that something turns up suggesting that the story might not be quite true or or not quite so bad as it was made out. Here's the test. Is one's first feeling, thank God, even they aren't quite so bad as that? Or is the feeling a feeling of disappointment and even a determination to cling to the first story for the sheer pleasure of thinking your enemies as bad as possible. That's a good test. We all have enemies, or at least we have people in our lives that we're not very fond of. So let's put the test like this. Well, what do you do when you get a juicy piece of news about them? Do you immediately mourn over that piece of news, or do you celebrate that piece of news? Do you sit back in your chair and have that smug smile at their misfortune or trouble or whatever it might be? Or... When and if the news turns out to be overstated or untrue or out of balance, do you immediately feel a sense of relief, saying with C.S. Lewis, thank God even they aren't quite so bad as that? Or do we feel grief in our souls because we wanted to hold on to that piece of news and, and rejoice in that piece of news because we, it made us feel good? That's quite a test. I can't pass that test. 
I look in the mirror, I see the yellow in my own eye, and I doubt that there's anyone in this room that can escape this test. And so we ask, if we can't escape the test, if there's yellow in our eyes, well, what does that mean for us? Well, Lewis keeps writing in his book, and he says this, If it is the second, then it is, I am afraid, the first step in a process which, if followed to the end, will make us all into devils. You see, one is beginning to wish that black was a little blacker. And if we give that wish its head, later on we will wish to see gray as black, and then to see white itself as black. And finally, we shall insist on seeing everything, God, our friends, and ourselves included, as bad and not be able to stop doing it. And we shall forever be fixed in a universe of pure hatred. So where does the yellow in our lives lead if we give way to it? Well, it leads, Lewis says, to a universe of pure hatred. Or to put it like this, we'll all become devils. And Lewis is on to something here because he understands something about the human heart. Envy always breeds more envy. Suspicion is never content. It's always looking for another rock to to flip over and uncover. Ill will never gets tired. It's always ready to to carry on the fight. It never wants to rest. It never wants to call a truce. Cynicism has the Midas touch. Everything it touches becomes questionable. And if we give way to these matters in our hearts, we will all be caught up in this universe of pure hatred. Now all of this, this whole introduction to the sermon begs a question, doesn't it? How can this all be put to a stop? We, we read the story of 1 Samuel. We meet Peninnah. We meet Saul. And we ask, well, how can this be put to a stop? We study our own hearts. We took C.S. Lewis's test. We, we see the yellow in our own eyes. And we ask God, well, God, how are you going to put a stop to this in my own heart, my own mind? I don't want to be a cynic anymore. I don't want to be suspicious anymore. I don't want to be envious or prejudiced anymore. Well, here's the answer. God is going to stop all of this by giving to his people a king with a righteous heart. God is going to break this cycle of pure hatred, of envy, ill will, suspicion, cynicism, by sending a new man with a heart that is different from everyone else's heart. And it's going to break the cycle for our good. And so our aim this morning is to look into 2 Samuel chapter 1 and to see the heart of this righteous king. And this righteous king's heart is going to be revealed both by his actions and by his words. And that's going to be our rough outline for our exposition of this chapter. We're first going to look at David's actions in verses 1 through 16. And then in verses 17 through 27, we're going to take our time and listen to David's words and see what all of these things reveal about his heart. So let's start with David's actions, verses 1 through 16. So we've read the text, you have your Bible open, you're looking at the text, we're doing a quick survey of the text, and I want to point out to you that these 16 verses are odd. They're odd both in content and in pace. So in regard to content, they are odd because we don't get anything new in these verses. We already know that Saul is dead and Jonathan dead, and that that the the, the army of Israel has been defeated in battle, we already know all of that. And then in regard to pace, this is where it really gets odd. 
We get this repeated information. We read it in 1 Samuel chapter 31 about eight weeks ago. We get the same information of 1 Samuel chapter 31, but we get it at a snail's pace. So just follow along with me. Let's look at the text. So a messenger comes to David, and the story pauses. The story just stops so that we can get this description of this man. Verse 2. His clothes were torn and dirt on his head. And then we get this back-and-forth conversation between David and this messenger, and it seems that David has to, to pull the information out of this man. It's like an interrogation, a slow one. Verse 3. Where do you come from, David asks, and the man replies, I've escaped from the camp of Israel, and the conversation continues to drag on. David queries this man. He asks in verse 4, well, how did it go? Tell me. The man replies, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. But the conversation is over. David doesn't rest yet. He wants to know more. He's going to pull more out of this man. Verse 5, he asks, well, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the man replies. We see it in verse 6 and in the following verses. He says, by chance, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa, And there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him, and when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, And I have brought them here to my Lord. So this is odd. It's odd both in content and in pace. We're getting the same information we've already received earlier in the story. And so as readers, we're we're saying to ourselves, I already know this. And it's odd in pace because it's just giving us the information so slowly. It's almost painful. We ask, why? Why? Well, the answer is this. The focus of this chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 1, is not on Saul. So if you come to this chapter looking for new information about Saul or or Jonathan or the army of Israel, you're going to be disappointed because this whole chapter is about David. The chapter repeats the same information and doing it at a very slow pace. So as readers, we would just pause and look at David. What is David going to do with this information he receives about Saul? And so we ask, well, what does David do? Well, the first thing he does is he immediately and spontaneously breaks into mourning. Look at verse 11 and verse 12. Then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel. The second thing that David does after immediately mourning is he determines in his heart to do justice. It's clear, we've listened to the Amalekite, that this guy is lying through his teeth. He didn't kill Saul. Rather, he spun this self-serving story for the sake of personal gain. He wants a share of the Davidic pie. He knows that David is going to reign over Israel, and he wants a piece of it, and so he wants a piece of it through deceit. But David looks at this man and listens to his story, and he takes no delight in this Amalekite. He doesn't operate by the moral that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and he doesn't embrace the logic that all is fair in love and war. Rather, what does David do? He executes this man for his claim to have killed the Lord's anointed. 
And so here David's actions, he mourns and he does justice. And we ask, well, what is going on in David's heart? What do we see of this man? And what we see is this, in David's heart is righteousness. And we have to take in this scene because it's absolutely remarkable. Just ponder this for a moment. The news comes to David. The messenger is essentially saying this, Saul is dead. Just put yourself in David's shoes for a moment. Saul is dead. Dead is the man who tried to kill you with a spear three times. Dead is the man who smeared and ruined your name in Israel. Dead is the man who chased you around the wilderness for years. Dead is the man who took your first wife and gave her to another man. Dead. What does David do? Just look at him in this text. This is so remarkable. It's so strange. David is so different. He doesn't smile and jump up and down. He doesn't sit back in his chair with that smug smile of of vindication. Rather, what does he do? Look at David. This is so different. He rips his clothes. He stops eating. And tears begin to flow from his eyes as he considers the fate of one of God's people in their shame. What do we see in David? We see the work of God in his heart. What is God doing in David? He is breaking the cycle of envy, ill will, suspicion, cynicism, and prejudice. We look at David's heart, and by God's grace, in this moment, his heart is pure. It's glorious. It's good news. Now we can move on. Those are David's actions. Now verses 17 through 27, David's words. Now, it's one thing to pass the immediate test. The news came to David. He was confronted out of the blue. Saul is dead, and he responds in a righteous, God-glorifying way. Praise God. But now we have to ask, what's going to happen to David when the memories of Saul begin to fester in his soul? What about those times when when David's going to lie in his bed at 2 a.m. awake and he's remembering all of the wrongs done to him, all of the injustices that he faced, all of the troubles he experienced because of Saul? What is David going to do? What's his heart going to be like then? Well, there's no way to give a sure answer to all of those questions. We don't have access But what we find in verses 17 through 27 give us a good indicator of what was going on in David's heart. And so in these verses, we find a song. And songs are important in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel. The story begins with a song. In the middle of the story, there's a song. And the story is going to end with a song. That's how the whole structure of the book works. And so right in the middle of the story, where we're at, there's a song. And this song has a specific genre. It's a lament, meaning it's a song for a funeral. You would weep and and cry. And as we look at this song, we want to just make this note. This song wasn't written in a moment. Unlike David's initial grief, this song isn't spontaneous. It's not immediate. This song is rather a, a product of serious meditation and careful thought. We could say that David probably spent hours, perhaps even parts of days, putting together this pit piece of, of rich poetry. You don't write poetry like this in five minutes. And so we ask, well, what comes out of David's mouth? Well, let's look at the song. Do we find any bitterness in David as he ruminates upon Saul? Look at verse 19. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. 
Go down to verse 24. Your, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. What is David doing? Is there bitterness in his soul? No, he is turning to the people of God and he's instructing them to mourn for their king. Even more in this climactic piece of the poetry, David turns not only to the people of Israel, but he turns to creation itself and he, he calls creation to start mourning as well. Verse 21, you mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. So there's no bitterness there, but how about resentment? Is that at work in David's heart? Look at verse 23. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. David wrote those words. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. What's coming out of David's mouth? Not resentment, but praise. Affection. How about envy, though? And again, no, we don't find any envy. What, is, what does David do in this song? Well, he, he starts to publish the glories, the accomplishments, the wonders of Saul and his reign, Jonathan and his armies. He says in verse 23, they were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. He says in verse 22, from the, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. What is David saying? He's saying every time Saul lashed out with his sword, it connected. He's that kind of warrior, a really good warrior. Now just pause for a moment. Is it not when we have a chance to stew for a period of time? Just think about it. The house is quiet. No one's around. No one's there to break up our chain of thoughts when our worst thoughts are born. Is it not when we have a chance to ruminate on all the wrongs done to us, all the troubles we have experienced, that the bitterness and rage start to rise up in our souls? They start to percolate. But go and look at David here. David is ruminating. We could say the crockpot of his soul has been turned on and has been turned on for a while. And what do you smell coming out of his soul? Do you smell anything sour or stinky? No. What do we find coming out of his mouth? We find that which is pleasing and good and wholesome. And again, we're amazed because we see in David, in this man, we see the work of God's grace. In this king, God is breaking the cycle of envy, ill will, suspicion, and cynicism. This is glorious. So now we need to bring this text home to ourselves. We've looked at David's actions, David's words. We've seen his heart. He has a heart of righteousness. And now we need to ask, well, how should we respond to 2 Samuel chapter 1? What do we do with this David? Well, I think an appropriate response is something like this. We should all say, I want a king like that. I want a king who has a heart of, of righteousness. I want a king who has a heart free from bitterness and envy. I want a king who, when he sees one of the members of God's people shamed and defeated, I want to see a king who, who mourns and weeps. I want a king like that to lead me. I want a king like that to save me from my own sick heart. I want to live with that king, and I want that king to live with me. So hear the good news of the gospel this morning. God has put a stop to the hatred that rages in this world, and not only in this world, but in our very souls, and he has done it by giving us the king. 
And this king that God has given us is righteous in heart and motive and thought, and he is radically free from all sin. No pollution has touched his heart. And what I want to do briefly this morning is set before you this glorious king, the king that 2 Samuel chapter 1 is all about and that is held out to you in the fullness of the gospel. What I want to do is I want to give you four negative statements so that we might once again see the glory of Jesus and not only see the glory of Jesus, but being prompted by the glory of Jesus to reach out to him in faith saying, I want a king like that. Or better yet, I want Jesus himself. So here's the first statement. There is in Jesus no cynicism. There is in Jesus no cynicism. So what does the cynic do? The cynic sits by in idle smugness. Going on in the the cynic's heart, he says something like this, I know that man and that will never work. I know that woman and I know that woman's character and she is never going to make it and I'm going to sit here in my chair and watch that person fail. In fact, I'm going to sit here in this chair and I'm going to rejoice the whole time they fail. This is pleasurable to me. But there is in Jesus no cynicism. Brother, sister, Jesus knows everything about you. He is omniscient. His knowledge penetrates our very being. It penetrates our minds. He knows every thought that flashes through our brains. He knows every evil and unbecoming word that has been formed in our mind, but yet not spoken with our mouths. He knows it all. And hear the good news about Jesus. Jesus knows us completely, top to bottom, inside and out, but he doesn't sit by and let us fail. Rather, what has he done? He has come in the gospel. And he reaches out to us with hands full of grace and mercy. He has come to shed his blood to save sinners like us. In fact, he is seated at the Father's right hand right now doing what? Applying grace to his people. Jesus is here using this word to change us. And what do we say as God's people I want a king like that. I want Jesus. Statement number two. There is in Jesus no ill will. There is in Jesus no ill will. When we are wronged, our wills are bent out of shape. If you have a car accident, what happens? Well, the metal on your car is just bent and twisted. And that's what happens when we get into conflicts often with people. Our wills get get bent, or we could say our wills become poisoned. And the result of all of this is that we start to wish all sorts of terrible things upon other people. We have ill will in our souls. But hear the good news of the gospel. In Jesus, there is no ill will, not even a shred of it, none. Consider Jesus. During his life, he was wrong from beginning to the very end of it and every moment in between. Jesus was born, and and what happened? There was Herod, and he tried to to kill Jesus. Or think about Jesus' ministry. He is preaching and teaching the words of life, but who resists him? Well, the teachers and preachers of God's people. They slander him and and push back against him, and and they try to trip him up. And then there's Jesus' own family. At one point in the gospel narratives, they say that Jesus is out of his mind and they're trying to corral Jesus. And then there's Jesus' hometown. They won't receive him or believe his words. Then consider his own disciples. 
One of his own disciples betrayed him. Consider Jesus' own people. They handed him over to the Romans. And consider the Romans. Consider the, the nations. What do they do? They, they kill the Lord of glory. Now I bid you, look at Jesus Christ. Look at his face. Look at his eyes. Because there is no ill will in this Son of God. His will is straight and true. No insult, no hurt deformed his will. In the greatest wrong that was ever committed in human history, Jesus reveals his perfectly righteous heart. Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel of grace. Here is your king. And what do we say as God's people? I want that king. I can't live without him. Statement number three. There is in Jesus no envy. There is in Jesus no envy. We've seen envy at work in the book of 1 Samuel. Saul envied David. Peninnah envied Hannah. And we ask, well, why such hatred? Why such hatred from Saul towards David, from Peninnah towards Hannah? Why such hatred? Well, these, these characters lacked Saul lacked the affections of God's people, and he saw that David had the affections of God's people. And so what did he do? He hated David because David had what he wanted. And the same with Peninnah. Peninnah looked at Hannah, and Hannah had the affections of the husband, Elkanah. And Peninnah did not have those, and so she looked at Hannah, and she hated. But hear the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, there is no envy. And one of the reasons there is no envy in our Lord Jesus Christ because there is no lack in Jesus Christ. There is only fullness in Jesus Christ. In fact, this is how Jesus offers himself to us in the gospel. He offers fullness to us. Jesus says this in John chapter 7, verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I am a fountain of never-ending life. I can never lack in here. Come and drink. Drink of me. What happens when we start drinking of this Jesus? The envy starts leaving our hearts and our souls because we find in this Jesus, this Jesus who never envied, all that we need and more. And so we see Jesus presented to us in the gospel. And what do we say as God's people? I want him. I want him. Statement number four. There is in Jesus no prejudice. What is prejudice? Well, prejudice is an unjust judgment. It is a judgment that perverts righteousness. It does not accord to the, to the will or law of God. And, and why does prejudice happen? Well, it happens because a judgment is given that does not accord with the truth. In one way or another, the, the judge overlooks the truth whether he's looking for personal gain or whether he hates a certain group of people for some reason, injustice is perverted. And as we look at the story of 1 Samuel, we see that there is so much prejudice. We see it in, in the characters. We see it in the story of Eli. He is prejudiced. And so what does he do? Well, he lets his son slip by. Hophni and Phinehas. We, we see it in the life of, of Saul. He is, he is prejudiced and justice is perverted during his reign. We see it in our own hearts, one way or another. But hear the good news of the gospel. Jesus is not prejudiced. 
His judgments always accord with the truth. His discernment is pure and flawless. His decisions are always right and good. They never err. There is no prejudice in Jesus because he always operates according to the truth. What does this mean for us as God's people? We have a king we can completely trust. We have a king that we can completely trust. His judgments aren't going to go left or or right. We know the way Jesus is going, and so we can entrust our souls to him because he has no prejudice in him. And what do we say as God's people? I want a king like that. And so, friends, brothers and sisters, behold the Savior. He is before you, and he is God's answer to this world of pure hatred. There is in Jesus pure moral perfection. Just look at his heart. Examine it and study it. You won't find any blemish. There isn't any cynicism or ill will or envy or prejudice. All you will find as you excavate the heart of Jesus Christ is perfect righteousness from top to bottom. And this is our salvation. You want freedom from your own heart? What do you must do? You must come to this Jesus, maybe for the first time, for the thousandth time, or the ten thousandth time. We come to this Christ. And so hear the call of the gospel. Jesus is commanding you this day to entrust yourself to him. He's calling you, follow me wherever I go. Even more, he desires that we would turn to him and pray, Lord Jesus, would you change my heart? Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we rejoice in you this morning. You are our king and we want you. And so we pray this morning, would you change our hearts and would you free us from this world of pure hatred? And would you start by the power of your spirit as the word works and press these great realities upon us? Would you make us pure and holy? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.